Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership in GMTA. And every week, I am joined by educators and music leaders throughout the state of Georgia to hear their stories, gather insights and inspiration from them, and learn from their wealth of knowledge and experiences. I am really excited to meet and speak with Chris Carlisle today. So let's get to that conversation. Hello, Chris. Hello, how are you? Good, good. Let's get started with just a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Well, basically what I do is I teach piano primarily, and then I also teach music theory at Berry College in Northwest Georgia. Um, I started playing the piano, I was probably about five. I had a friend whose mother was a piano teacher and I thought, I wanna do that, you know? So I, I started and fortunately from the time I was fairly small, I, I guess I was pretty good because I would win competition, you know, no, no state competitions necessarily initially, but, and I thought because I'm fairly competitive, I thought that was pretty good. So, and then by the time I was, I think I was in junior high, I got a new teacher who really inspired me kind of real old school spinster that is the word they used to say lady that really pushed me hard and then when I got to, to uh, I was going to start to college I really didn't see any other path for me except music and not not that I thought I was limited but that was what I knew I was going to do for the rest of my life my parents always said you know you should you should major in something else so you have something to back to fall back on but I always I've always felt like if you have something to fall back on you probably will and I, I always knew that music was all I was going to do. That was it. I play the piano. And every day I feel so fortunate I get to go and talk about music and play music and listen to music and educate people about music. It's, I, I find it very exciting. Yeah. So obviously you're able to make a career out of this field, this very competitive and difficult field. Um, tell us about the journey of going from a student now to a professional and a seasoned professional at that. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a tough transition. I think most most pianists would probably tell you the same thing. You know, as a student, you're so used to relying on somebody else for information, for input, for guidance, and then suddenly, when you're not in that position anymore, you learn. I I think I've learned a lot about how to practice, how to listen better, which I think also helps my teaching, being a better listener, being more conscious of, you know, sometimes we think that what we're doing has a particular effect or sound and really getting to the where the point where we're not just hearing what we, what we think is happening, but we're actually really hearing what's happening, you know, and um, sometimes it takes a recording and, you know, hopefully you get to the point as a professional that you can make, make those choices a little more easily. Yeah, I was reading your bio and it hinted that you do quite a bit of new music, contemporary music, is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. How did you get into that? I was, uh, after I finished the conservatory in San Francisco, I went to USC for a year and was not really getting what I thought I needed there. So I, uh, I had made an introduction to the composition teacher there whose wife uh, taught at a different school and uh, she focused on contemporary music. And once I got to her and we started working, it, she was really, I would say probably the, in terms of my getting into contemporary music, probably the most influential person that I've ever worked with. My uh, doctoral thesis had to do with George Crumb's Macrocosmos. And it's just kind of, kind of gone from there for me. 
Can, are you able to articulate what about contemporary music or newer music that attracts you that is interesting to you? Because a lot of people find it challenging to understand and challenging to relate to, but you relate to it. So, wow, that is a really good question. Um, part of it, I think, is that I've never been a person that likes to listen to recordings to inform me about my my performance. You know, after I've learned a piece and I've made decisions, I may listen to various recordings to say and say, oh, I like that. That's a great idea. I'm going to use that. The thing that I like so much about contemporary music is very often there is there is no performance of it. And you can you can come at it completely from your own standpoint, from your own point of view. And I hope that what I do is I make it that I make my choices and my decisions about the music obvious to the listeners so that they can make sense of what it is that I'm doing. I do realize I did a recording of some all 12 tone preludes and a friend of mine said, don't put that on the first of the CD because nobody will ever listen to any more of it than that. And I, I realized some of it's rough, you know, some of, sometimes you have to get to the end of the concert and say, what a great audience they sat through it, you know, and I realize it's, it, they want to hear some Chopin and Beethoven and I get that, but uh, you know, nobody needs to hear me play Beethoven yet again. So from what I know about new music, I don't play too much of it, but it seems like there's a lot of collaboration between the performer and the composer. Do you work closely with uh, living composers? Well, a lot of them, yes. Mm -hmm. I've had some pieces written for me specifically, not not some were requested, uh, and some were just were just given to me to perform because they knew of what I did. Um, and then, yeah, you can make. Um, right now, I'm in a piano duo with Rachel Chung from Spelman. And so we have a lot of pieces by various composers and we're working with a young man. He's just 21, wrote a brilliant piece, but some of the things that he wrote, you simply can't do on the piano. And so he's been, you know, so we'll email back and forth and he's been very good about saying, how about this? And he'll, he'll change it and send me an updated version. I'll send it to Rachel and she'll say, that's, I still don't think that we're going to be able to do that. Sometimes composers, I've had a composer once say, just write, just play what I wrote. And then I said, well, would you at least listen to the recording? And when she, she listened to it and she said, yeah, you're right. There were mistakes in there. So, you know, in her, in her manuscript, there were mistakes anyway. So generally composers are pretty happy to do that. There are the few, however, that don't want you to question them, you know. Yeah, we're going to backtrack and talk about your uh, development as a young child and as a young musician. What was practicing like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated? When I was a little kid, this is kind of a, maybe embarrassing or funny story. I'm not sure what, but I had the practice that I had to do. I had to play each of my pieces when I was really little, I had to play each piece three times. And so my mother would put pieces of candy on one side of the piano. And when I played it once, I got to move it to the other side. And then I got to move the other one. And, I, and so then by the time I got to the end, they were all over there and I got to eat all the candy. But that was probably when I was maybe up to, you know, seven or something like that. I was always, always pretty motivated. I mean, you know, everybody goes through the days where they're just like, I just don't want to do this today. But I was always motivated. And, and that continued through high school, even though sometimes it was, you know, with busy high school life, sometimes it was a little bit difficult. But I never really minded practicing. And quite honestly, I almost prefer practicing to performing. It's, I find the, the experience of kind of figuring it all out just so exciting to me. Yeah, you almost make it sound like the process is enjoyable for you instead of drudgery. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects that you are currently working on? 
I do. Um, I am working, as I said, with Rachel Chung. We're working on a, um, well, we've done, we've performed the program a couple of times and we're looking to expand it of composers are, who are all living composers. Some pieces, again, were, were written for us specifically. Some of them were just submitted. We probably received about 80 pieces and we've kind of eliminated some and we've, we've performed some and we're looking to expand maybe in this next year look into some of the new ones. And I'm also right now working on a project with our saxophone professor. Uh, we're doing a recording of pieces for saxophone and piano by uh, female American composers. And all of them are, they're all live living composers right now. And it, it's some exciting music. There's some very interesting pieces that we're working on. Hmm. You breezed through it uh, fairly quickly, but you hinted that you got 80 pieces. Did you send a call out for like forehand to piano works and composers just sent it to you, just emailed it to you like that? Yeah, it was um, it's the composer site in New York. And that was we I put a call to them. I've done that before. The very first CD I made was probably in the early, early 20th, 21st century, I guess. And when I put out a call for that, I received all these manuscripts. And now nobody's, you know, now everybody just sends it to you. I download it onto my iPad, which I use, and, and we just go from there. Yeah, there were about probably 80 to 100 pieces. Sometimes they would have a reference recording that we could listen to. Sometimes we would just, we kind of both just sit and play through things and just say, you know, this doesn't really work for me. Rachel and I both have different technical fortes, I guess I would say. And so, so that was sometimes you'd say, oh, this piece is just really simplistic and really not very interesting for us. And <clears throat> there were some pieces that were so difficult that we really wondered if the time put in was going to be worth the result, you know? Yeah. So we, the, we performed, I think, probably about 20 of them all together so far. Okay. And is it every recital you're going to perform a new set of pieces or are you taking the same set of pieces and you're going around playing them? The last two we did, we, we played at Spelman and we played here at Berry College. We did the same program for both of those. But I think that we will start, there's a piece that's being written for us that we will start including that might mean that we have to leave something else out. And there's a couple of other pieces that we're very interested in looking at as well, though the pieces that we played this last time were obviously our we chose them because they were our favorites so far. So it'd be hard to kind of eliminate one to add something else, but I think it's probably a good trade-off for us. Yeah, I'm sure the composers are ecstatic that they have advocates and people who are willing to spend the time to learn their music and then take it out and um, have audiences hear it. Right. Yeah. Do you have any passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? My cats and gardening. How many cats do you have? Two boys, their brothers named Hector and Paris from the Trojan War. They're infuriating sometimes and they're wonderful sometimes too. And they're so sweet. And like I said, and I love gardening. I love to, I love to be outside. This last week hasn't been very good for that, but uh, I love to be out and, and work with plants. And, you know, I, I really enjoy that very much. Yeah, tell me about your garden. Do you do vegetables, fruit trees, flowers? What do you do? All of the above. Yeah, we have. Um, we just started putting in fruit trees. So we right now we have two pear trees and an orange tree because we're from Southern California. But I'm I'm kind of hopeful, but not particularly. It gets too cold here for them. But and then we have a garden with squash and potatoes and tomatoes and peppers and that sort of thing. 
I love roses. We have rose bushes, iris. I love iris as well. So yeah, and we have a big, we have about two and a half acres. And so part of it is kind of, we're trying to transform it right now. It's kind of a little bit on the wild side. So yeah. I love asking this question because uh, I mean, I throw this question into the list of possible interview questions because I like seeing what musicians do outside of music. And it seems like there is a bit of a trend. A lot of musicians really enjoy plants and gardening. And I don't know if there's something about the nurturing quality of it or the consistent quality of it or kind of the slow process of growing plants and the slow process of developing and growing in music that makes it just such a great combination. But I have gotten that answer quite a bit. And now I'm just like reflecting on that. Like a lot of people say that. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, the kind of it's kind of an artistic thing, you know, isn't it? I, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Yeah. What are your plans for the near future, the next two to five years? I have another new project that I'm looking at. I'm going to be on sabbatical next spring. I'm looking into how architecture, there's a great quote by Stravinsky saying that architecture is the greatest of all art forms because it takes chaos out of the equation. And so I'm trying to find if there's any correlation between structures in architecture and structures in, in music, piano music specifically. So I'm going to be traveling around looking into that idea, you know, and trying to make some connections perhaps for performances, if I can make connections between the pieces and the places that I find. And then other than that, just keeping doing what I'm doing. I, I have a new music ensemble. I started at the college about three years ago and it's doing quite well. And it's it's a great experience for the students. You know, we get so tied into having to play exactly the right notes all the time. And it's so much more about how they learn to express themselves. And hopefully that that also leads them to being more expressive in the work that they do on their own instruments or voices or whatever it happens to be. The other, let's see, more plants and figures. I'd like to get a new roof for my house, but that's a little expensive right now. So I don't know, we'll have to see about that. Yeah, so that raises an interesting question. I mean, I think it's one thing for us to play new music and to explore new music, but how do you teach new music to students and how do you get them excited or are they excited? In our new music ensemble, we do a lot of a lot of work because I never know who's going to sign up for the class. There's kind of a core that's always there, but then suddenly we'll have, you know, I'll have three vocalists, a percussionist, a pianist, and the clarinet, you know. So we do a lot of things that are, are non-specific. So uh, for example, we might do a piece that is based on a poem. So the, the composer might say, generally we don't even have things that have scores as far as it might say, here's the poem. One of my students actually wrote a piece of, of a poem of Emily Bronte. And so you're supposed to read through the poem and think, what would this sound like on my instrument? So it gives them the chance to kind of, when they first start, everybody kind of just is, is very quiet, you know, and they're trying not to make too much noise. But then as they kind of start to experience that and explore it a little bit more, so we, we don't do things generally, like I said, that are written specifically. So, very, but I mean, they are in terms of the composers have given specific directions. They might give specific pitches. They might give some pitch ideas. Some of them have given us that as well. And again, it just gives them the chance to explore and to kind of be, be a little freer with, with what, the, what it is that they're doing and see that there's more to musical expression than just playing all the right notes. 
Yeah. So as a teacher and other teachers listening to this might be in the same boat as me, what kind of comments do you give to students in pieces like that? Like, what are you listening for as a teacher? What instructions are you giving? It very often has to do with the piece. We generally find it's it's interesting working with an ensemble for 14 weeks like that is that by the time they kind of become an ensemble and they kind of start to listen to each other. And that's the thing you can tell when people are just making things up and just playing stuff. Or are they really listening to what the others are doing? And so there are times where, where we stop and say, okay, this is this is not working very well. What what is the issue? You know, what are we talking about here? You keep doing that and nobody's responding. Perhaps you want to rethink that or asking them what are you listening to each other? Is there is there something a problem with all of this? Uh, so it's not to be so specific, but very often uh, there are times where I just have to say that just didn't work very well, did it? You mm -hmm. know, and then I try it again. But it's it's really very interesting. You know, there are certain times where I they finish something and I always think that was I'll just say to them that was truly inspired. You know, and you don't always know exactly how it's going to work, and sometimes it has to do with directions. And I think we have also gone through when we've gone through pieces and eliminated things just to say, this is just not, not for this particular ensemble, not a, not a, not a good piece necessarily, but just not for us as we were configured at the time. Hmm. Can I backtrack to the earlier uh, interest that you expressed in architecture and music? What's your running thesis right now? Are you, are you thinking that maybe the architecture that the composer is seeing might influence their music or somehow there's a mathematical correlation? Um, what is that relationship that you're going off of? Well, I'm kind of thinking, we'll be doing specifically contemporary, hoping to find all buildings that are 21st century. But I kind of think of when I think back to the Baroque period, for example, the Baroque music is florid to it in a sense. And you look at Baroque architecture and it is very much so. The classical period has much more to do with balance and symmetry. Architecture reflects that as well. You know, that we've got forms, very specific forms that are set certain ways. And so I'm trying to see, you know, there's so many broken architectural rules, I guess. Now, when you start looking at things, you think about maybe the Disney um, Hall in Los Angeles, and there's a, a lot of other buildings that are very similar to that, or in Bilbao in Spain, where you think this is not what a building technically looks like. This is this is a shape. This is, and so I'm kind of looking to see in music, you know, when we have things that have such changing meters and changing, such changing shapes to it and that sort of thing. Is is that free form similar to what we're start what we're seeing in architecture? And I I'm not sure it is just yet. I may come back and finish my sabbatical and go, nope, I don't see it. But I I kind of I kind of have the idea that it's there somewhere. Hmm. Well, I'll have to follow up with you after your sabbatical and see what your results are. Yeah. What do you see should be the future and role of classical music in society in the 21st century? Oh gosh. It should be a central place, I think, but gosh, that's such a good question, you know? And, you know, students will ask me very often about, you know, contemporary pieces. Well, how are we gonna, which of these pieces do you think are gonna be around forever? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't know, you know, Bach wasn't gonna be around forever until Mendelssohn said, hey, wait a minute, you know? And um, so I, I really don't know, you know, we know that there are thousands and thousands of composers that, that we might know the name of, but have never heard, or that just 
their music never saw the, the light of day as far as we know. And the, one of the reasons also that I like to do contemporary music is that I think very often people think, you know, I, I, could, I can relate to that because I might be able to do something like that, you know, and I don't, I think they, it takes the fear out of it. Now there are pieces, this project I'm working on with the saxophonist, it's hard music. There's no two ways about it. It's just hard music. But so many times you can listen to it and go, I can kind of see what that's about. And I, I'm hoping that by continuing to, to introduce people to new music, that, is, that they start to see that there's not just one kind of music, that there's all sorts of things. I do have to say that in general, we've started limiting all our concerts to about one hour just because audiences just don't sit through it anymore. And honestly, you know, with the lack of CDs and, and recordings anymore and everything's just on Noxos or wherever it happens to be, people don't go to concerts as much. And I, I wish that I had the answer. That's a very good question. And I'm not sure that I have a good answer for that. Mm. Since you are doing so much new music, do you notice any trends in the new music that is being composed uh, nowadays? Is, is there a, a theme or a strand that kind of ties it all together? Or are they really quite different from each other? We find a lot of things that have extended techniques and composers are coming up with, with new ideas. We did a piece by a guy named Michael Coleman from Florida that he created a piano, a, a pedal effect. And it's, it's really very interesting to listen to. So uh, Rachel plays Primo on that and, and she's using the pedal and I'm looking inside the piano. Those are kind of not as common, I think, as they were probably in the 80s and 90s. I guess George Crumb did a lot of that too. But um, I think more and more, it has a lot to do with kind of spatial ideas. And that's kind of where I got the architectural idea, kind of spatial ideas or very rhythmic ideas. And so there's kind of, seems like there's kind of two. And I think of the rhythmical ideas, kind of the structure itself and the spatial ideas, kind of the form that it takes once it's all done. Mm -hmm. So turning to a completely different stream of thought, if you had a chance to redo your life and career choices, what would you change or not change about them? My life and career choices. I don't, think I would change anything. I certainly wouldn't change my career. I mean, I love what I do. I really do. And I feel very lucky to be where I am. I don't know, maybe I would have practiced more as an undergraduate. Uh, you know, um, I really, I, I don't really know. I, I can't really think of anything specifically. I mean, I think everything that I've done in my life has led me to where I am and I'm very happy. So I don't think I'd really change anything. That's a good place to be. No regrets. Yeah. Yeah. So then, based on that, do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? Never sell yourself short. You know, I think that we, we all know that music's not an easy profession to get into professionally and make a living. But, but just because that's the case, you know, it, takes, it took so long. I, when I was in school, you know, we did all these gigs to make money so that we could get along. And it got to the point where somebody would say, well, I'll pay you $25 to play a wedding. And I go, okay, I need $25. And it gets, it's so hard to get to the point where you say, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and we do, sometimes we do things that we, we end up hating and then you end up hating the process. So I would say never, never do things that you're thinking, oh gosh, I wish I didn't have to do this. Then, then don't do something different than that. I know that's easy to say now in my position, but, you know, <clears throat> don't sell yourself short and don't give up. Don't give up. There's, you know, there's a place for everybody in music, I think. 
Yeah, this is our very last question. So it's very <laughs> similar to the previous question, but just a little different tint to it. What advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? I would say that unless you love it and you feel that you have to do it, there are many other things that you should do. I mean, I know that sounds very easy, but it, it's not going to be an easy thing. And the people that feel that they have to do it, they're going to find a way to do it. And people that are just like, well, you know, yeah, I could do that. I, I think it's a mistake. I think it's way too difficult and it's too long a road to get to where you need to be if you just are kind of in it and you don't really care about it. And mm -hmm. that shows performance too. If you're like, yeah, okay. You, you can see there's that lack of something that, that we all know, but we, we can't really put a word to it, you know? Chris, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for allowing me to just wander down paths and chase rabbit trails. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing and allowing me to ask questions about new music. This is just a kind of a different feel than what I am used to. So I'm sure I found it fascinating. I'm sure our listeners will find it fascinating. And thank you for being an advocate for um, composers and new music. I think we do need people like you in our field who is actively out there learning these incredibly difficult pieces and sharing it with us so that we can experience them and hear them. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. <laughs>